Good afternoon. Welcome to another George Consortium COVID-19 Public Health Law Briefing presented by our colleagues around the country in association with the Public Health Law Watch at Northeastern University and the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University. We are here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic and hopefully to answer some of your questions. I'm Wendy Parmet, Professor of Law at Northeastern University School of Law. Joining me today is Rakia Yerby of St. Louis University School of Law and Seema Mohapatra from the Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law. And I'm especially thrilled to have them join us today to discuss some very important issues about COVID-19 and disparities. So we're actually recording this conversation on Memorial Day, a rather sober time that feels especially somber this year, as the reported deaths from COVID-19 in the United States approaches 100,000. But we know that these deaths are not equally distributed across all communities. Rather, COVID-19 is disproportionately impacting poor communities and communities of color. Seema, maybe we could start with you. Is this something new? Is this something surprising? Sadly, no. Yeah, sadly, it is not new and it is not surprising. Yesterday, I know most of you saw the New York Times front page with uh, the thousand names and, you know, that spanned over four, four pages. And, you know, as we know that this is a disproportionately affecting, you know, those names did not talk about what the races or ethnicities of the people are, but it's disproportionately affecting people of color. And we saw this in past pandemics. And so during the 1918 flu pandemic, Native Americans had a mortality rate of four times higher than any other ethnic groups. During 2009, with H1N1, American Indian and Alaska Natives had a mortality rate from H1N1 that was four times of all other ethnic groups combined. And so racial and ethnic minorities are disproportionately impacted during pandemics. And it's not due to any kind of biological differences, which don't exist, but it's rather as a result of social factors. And so things like disparities to exposure to the virus, disparities in susceptibility to contracting the virus, and disparities in treatment. Rakia, maybe you could talk a little bit about the role of employment. Um, What role does it play in affecting these disparities? Right. So employment causes disparities in exposure to the virus and susceptibility and in treatment. And when we think about disparities in exposure, many low-wage workers who are predominantly people of color uh, can't stay home. They have to go to work, not only because their job can't be done home, but also because if they do stay at home, they'll either lose their job or lose necessary income. For example, when we look at farm workers who work in 42 out of the 50 states, they often cannot stay at home because they receive incomes below the poverty line. So they cannot afford to miss work. Uh, due to sickness. It causes disparities in susceptibility to COVID-19 and other viruses because they're working um, in areas where they cannot socially distance themselves, particularly meat plant workers cannot um, stay away from each other in terms of uh, the six feet, um, particularly in terms when there is plexiglass, um, they still don't have protective gear and the plexiglass is not in every area. So 
it's not in the bathrooms or in the areas where they eat. It causes disparities in treatment because many of these workers don't have access to health insurance. Um, when we think about farm workers who are predominantly immigrants, they're not covered under the ACA or Medicaid. And even if they do seek uh, treatment and health clinics, our immigration policies have put a chilling effect on that. And finally, poor workers are afraid to seek health care um, sometimes just because it can lead to bankruptcy. And so we see employment actually causing uh, disparities in exposure, uh, susceptibility, and treatment. So um, in the, your terrific health affairs blog that you uh, co-authored with SEMA entitled Structural Discrimination in COVID-19 Workplace Protections, you both say that these disparities are caused by structural discrimination. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what you mean by structural discrimination and how it's playing out right now? In this context, structural discrimination are the laws that advantage majority, the majority, while disadvantaging uh, minorities, particularly low-income workers. And the, this actually leads to disparities in exposure, susceptibility, and treatment. Uh, a great example of this is the plight of home health care workers who are predominantly women of color. Although they're paid uh, through Medicaid and Medicare, uh, they tend to live in poverty. In fact, one in five workers, 20%, are living below the poverty line compared to 7% all workers. They don't have paid sick leave, uh, they, and many of them rely on um, some form of public assistance. And this is a result of historical and current laws. So when we look at collective bargaining laws that were passed part of the New Deal era um, and during the Jim Crow era, many of them explicitly excluded these professions, so home health care workers, agricultural workers, domestic workers, or allowed for unions um, to discriminate against racial and ethnic minorities. And because we don't have a federal paid sick leave law, this is the way that workers were able to gain access to paid sick leave. So not being covered under unions, under collective bargaining, many of these workers don't have paid sick leave. And as I mentioned, this is one of the ways that we have disparity, uh, disparities in exposure and susceptibility because you can't stay home if you're sick. We can also turn to the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, uh, which guaranteed minimum wage, put in place the 40-hour work week, and overtime requirement. Home health care workers were not covered, neither were agricultural workers and service workers. Um, in fact, it wasn't until 2015 when finally the Fair Labor State Standards Act was applied to home health care workers. Um, and so you would think that that closed the gap. Unfortunately, it did not because now many of these workers are deemed independent contractors. And so uh, the Federal uh, Labor Standards Act does not apply to them, which means that they don't have the protection for minimum wage or 40 hours a week, leaving them um, in poverty, which increases exposure to disease and susceptibility to disease because you have to continue to work and you're working, giving care to people without uh, protective gear. Uh, the failure to pay higher wages and paid sick leave is an example of structural discrimination because what you have is it's benefiting uh, mostly whites and white workers who have been able to work in jobs with minimum wages, for overtime payment, with paid sick leave and health care. It also benefits the companies because they don't have to pay 
out uh, to home healthcare workers, minimum wage. Um, they don't have to pay for unemployment compensation. And so this leads to an increase in uh, exposure, susceptibility, and lack of treatment for these home healthcare workers that are predominantly women of color. So what about the laws that have been passed in response to the pandemic? The HEROES and CARES Act, SEMA, do they address these issues? So um, what's particularly unjust in this context, you know, is that during this pandemic, although the low-wage workers that Rakaya talked about have been deemed essential, um, they don't earn enough wages, as she said, adequate wages, or have personal protective uh, gear. And also the federal government is seeking to lower the wages of immigrant agricultural workers during this pandemic at the same time that it's increasing visa approvals to ensure that farmers have enough immigrant workers for spring planting. And so, and also unlike healthcare workers in institutional settings, home care workers have kind of been ignored in terms of providing, you know, whether they're provided with masks or other protective gear. And that we've seen examples of home care workers saying that they're making masks out of paper towels and hand sanitizers out of supplies that they bought themselves. That shouldn't be occurring for our most vulnerable workers. And what's sad is that the home care workers aren't really covered by the CARES Act because the home care industry advocate, they advocated that there would be a worker shortage if home health workers were included. And so, and also because half of agricultural workers are undocumented immigrants, the employment relief and the expanded health care protections that are provided by the CARES Act doesn't cover them either. So the CARES Act is really an example of structural discrimination because it primarily advantages uh, white workers while disadvantaging these vulnerable racial and ethnic minorities who don't receive the protection of the CARES Act. So are there any solutions, legal solutions, uh, to these problems? Um, let me start with you, Seema. Yeah, I mean, we really need a change, um, a massive change in laws and policies. Uh, as you know, uh, in public health, we often compare health to a stream. So using that analogy, the health harms that low-wage essential workers uh, face are the downstream effects of upstream factors, such as lax and unfair laws and policies that Rakaya talked about. Um, and so in our health affairs blog piece that will be published May 29th. We note that most uh, law and workplace conditions are two of the most important social determinants of health. And so we make suggestions both short-term and long-term. So I'll cover some short-term solutions that we talk about, and I'll have Rakaya talk about some of the longer-term solutions that we talk about in that piece and in a forthcoming piece. And so we talk about hazard pay, better workplace protections, paid sick leave, and free healthcare, COVID-related health care and child care as some solutions. And so you mentioned the HEROES Act before, and we highlight that the House of Representatives re recently passed these HEROES Act, and it included provisions that create a $200 billion fund for essential workers to receive hazard pay. Now that is not law yet, it's only been passed by the House, but it includes hazard pay for these low-wage essential workers that we've talked about during this webinar. And if it was enacted into law, that would be uh, help ensure that essential workers are better 
are compensated. However, we need more comprehensive hazard pay because the HEROES Act only covers employees and it doesn't cover independent contractors of essential businesses. Uh, We also suggest that there needs to be better workplace protections. At this time, uh, there's a lot of talk about immunity to providing immunity to employers and Rakai and I are working on a piece about that. But we suggest that instead of immunity, we actually need more um, oversight by OSHA. We need OSHA to mandate emergency safety measures for employers to protect workers. Um, And we need more frequent and comprehensive uh, inspections of these workplaces so that we protect workers. And so the HEROES Act actually does require OSHA to issue a standard to require workers, employers to develop about infection control. um, And it includes funding for worker protection and enforcement activities. And so that would be a step in the right direction if it was enacted. Um, We, Rakaya mentioned the need for paid sick leave and the lack of paid sick leave um, so that we really need that so people don't go to work when they're showing symptoms of COVID-19 because they're worried about not getting paid. Um, And so we really need that enforcement or or that support on a federal, state, and local level. Um, And then we need to make sure that these so-called responsibility bonuses that you might have read about where workers are encouraged to not have any absenteeism um, and so come to work for four straight weeks, that really, those kinds of bonuses encourage sick workers to go to work and potentially expose others. And so um, if the HEROES Act actually becomes law, it would require healthcare workers and first responders and workers at businesses with fewer than 50 employees and with more than 500 employees to provide coronavirus-related sick leave. And so that still does leave out independent contractors, but that would at least help protect more low-wage workers than are currently protected uh, under current law. And so the CARES Act did provide that private health insurance companies and Medicare and Medicaid have to provide free diagnosing, diagnostic testing for the virus that causes COVID-19 and any visits related to such testing without any kind of cost sharing or deductible payments or prior authorization. But that this really didn't go far enough. And especially when you think about undocumented workers who are often are essential workers, they lack access to Medicaid in many states um, and most states and to lack access, lack access to the ACA exchanges and are remain uninsured. And so the CARES Act actually permitted an option for states to create an option to cover COVID-19 related testing for those who are uninsured and that would have a federal match, but it didn't require this kind of support. And so if workers are really being asked to provide essential services, the federal government really needs to ensure that their employers provide free and frequent COVID testing to all of their employees and independent contractors, not just those that are um, depending on their immigration status. And we really need funding for all of the COVID-related healthcare costs for any of these workers and their family members. And so that would really help that ensure that workers seek care and protect their families and then reduce infections as a result. And then finally, we asked, talked about um, the fact that if you are an essential worker and you're being asked to go to work at a time where schools are closed, daycares are closed, um, workers with children are being put in a really untenable situation. And so essential workers need to be able to take care of their children. And so we need sustained federal and state support for ch- 
childcare um, for all, but especially for essential workers. And so the CARES Act does provide some block grant funding um, for childcare subsidies, but it doesn't um, necessarily say that you have to provide them for essential workers first. Um, and then the proposed HEROES Act also gives some additional childcare support. Um, and some of the CARES Act support like 12 weeks paid sick leave for employees that need to take care for their children if there's no child care or school available is a step in the right direction. But again, this exempts many kinds of employers that don't meet the definition of employers covered by CARES and it leaves independent contractors out in the cold without um, child care leaves. And so I just kind of talked about a lot of short-term solutions and I'm going to give it to Rakaya to talk about some of the long-term solutions that we've been focused on. So first we have to think about COVID-19 as not just um, a short pandemic, right? We're already seeing that a lot of people who are infected with it are going to have some long-term disability. And so when we think about access to healthcare, it can't just be that we're giving you access testing, we're giving you access to treatment to treat the original infection, that we have to think about some long-term healthcare to address the kidney issues, respiratory, heart issues, immunity issues that people are going to suffer from long-term. And so that means that we should think about providing access to healthcare for these essential workers beyond just this particular point in time. Um, That we need to do that regardless immigration status um, and really link it to the ability for people to be healthy um, and make it easier for them if they are no longer able to work uh, because of a COVID-19 infection so that they can get disability uh, payments um, and leave. When we talk about structural discrimination, we need to ensure that our labor protections apply across the board, but particularly to low-wage workers who are essential workers. As I mentioned, uh, the Federal Labor Standards Act does not always apply to home health care workers, domestic workers, agricultural workers, and service workers, um, particularly because they are often mislabeled as independent contractors, and we need to get rid of that division um, because they need to be protected. Uh, Another uh, solution that we pose is a guaranteed basic minimum income and paid sick leave. Um, In 1976, Alaska implemented a guaranteed basic income uh, called the Alaska Permanent Fund and has been sending dividends to Alaska residents since 1982. And what this does is that it helps guaranteed support for residents, helping them to address poverty, and it has no change in full-time employment. Many of the discussion has been that if we continue to provide support for workers, that they will stay at home. But that won't be the case if we actually increase the wages of workers. Um, furthermore, as we're talking about a guaranteed basic minimum income, there should be enough of it so that people can get deductions from Medicare and Social Security. So again, they could qualify for disability pay um, as well as Medicare when they get older, because often some of these low wage workers are not covered once they reach mat- uh, retirement age. Um, additionally, low wage workers need to receive savings accounts to equalize their pay compared to white workers that have benefited from employment law protections 
for a number of years. Uh, this will bring them up uh, above the standard of poverty. We also think they should have survivorship benefits because many low-wage workers don't have uh, life insurance. And as we're seeing, they're impacted not only by infections, but in terms of death rates, leaving their families without uh, someone to bring in income. And so these are some of the solutions uh, that we're addressing. I just want to highlight again the issue about uh, workers and the need for employers to be responsible for their actual health. Uh, we often see particularly a lot of discussion with meat plant workers being responsible uh, for their own infection because they're riding in cars together or they're living together. And what that doesn't actually take into consideration is that when you're in poverty, you don't have access uh, to transportation. You don't have opportunities to socially distance. Um, and so we need to think about that as we're protecting workers. We've talked about just workplace solutions, but it goes broader than that. Um, so. so thank you. You've left us with quite a important agenda. Um, and I'm sure we're not solving all of these issues. I'm sure you haven't touched upon, had the chance to talk about all of them, but you've given us a lot to think about and a lot to work on in the weeks and months ahead. So thank you so much to my guests. And to all of you for listening, we will be broadcasting here on Twitter and now YouTube also on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You can just go to our Public Health Law Watch YouTube channel or at, public, at PHLW Watch, or you can search for hashtag COVID Law Briefing. Show notes can be found at HTTPS slash www.publichealthlawwatch.org. Um, and our broadcasts are archived, the audios are archived at the Weekend Health Law Podcast at www.twill.com. The COVID-19 public health law briefings are produced by Faith Collig and Bethany Saxon. Thank you so much. We look forward to seeing you next time. Please stay healthy.